Amen. Ah, oh, so good to have you guys back. Well, um, let us continue to to rejoice in the grace of God this morning um, by turning in uh, our Bibles to Matthew chapter one, if you would. Matthew chapter one. Uh, we are taking a break from our series on First Corinthians for just a few weeks as we uh, celebrate the Advent season together, and. Uh, if you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, you know that we've been talking a lot about relationships and a lot about how the gospel reshapes our relationships in many, many helpful, powerful, and profound ways. And so uh, this, this passage is, in a sense, the intersection between 1 Corinthians and the, the topic of gospel relationships and the Christmas story. And so we're going to see the grace of, of the gospel in a particular relationship that you may have missed, you may have overlooked in the Christmas story. So let's see what we have in Matthew chapter 1, uh, by God's grace. Let's remember, this is God's word. Matthew 1, 18 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word, and Lord, may you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I, I pray that you would allow us to see the grace of God in what could be a very familiar story. But Lord, I pray that, that somehow through the familiarity that many of us have with the Christmas story, you would cut through it with the grace of God that we might be um, freshly amazed at who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage, uh, we find the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is often uh, perhaps the most overlooked story in the uh, overlooked person in the nativity. If you are a kid in a Christmas play, you're probably not angling for the role of Joseph. You want a like a juicy meaty role. Either like the the exotic costumes of the three magi or the the dirty dusty shepherds, you know, a good blue collar shepherd. Get to R. All right, let's go see the sun, you know. Um, I guess I have a pirate shepherd in my Christmas pageant. Uh, or Mary, everybody wants to be Mary, right? Um, and or the the angel, man, the angel has a lot of lines. The angels get a lot of lines. They get a lot of big lights on them. And somewhere tucked into the back of the nativity is Joseph. And Joseph actually uh, has been known throughout church history as Quiet Joseph because in all the Gospels, Joseph never speaks. 
But his actions and his example say something profound to us today. Now, to understand what his actions tell us today, you have to understand the drama of this moment that Joseph finds himself in. He, he is a, a carpenter or a young carpenter's apprentice. He's a young man. He's, he's about to embark on the next phase of his life. He's going to start a family. Now, we don't know exactly everything he believes about Mary or feels about Mary. We don't get a a Hallmark movie version of Joseph and Mary um, present in the scriptures. But we do know this. He does not object to marrying her. He's probably excited about it. He knew her, very likely. Uh, they lived in a small town, and so you kind of get to know everyone in the small town. And so he w- she was the girl next door for him. And, and often, uh, families would match their kids up as, uh, at, you know, when, when they were younger with like a, I don't know, you could say like a, like a, 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 I don't know. You're, you're making, you're basically saying these two, one day, if it works out, they're going to be married. All right. So their engagement was something different than ours. And I know probably a few families were like, you know what? I like this idea. You're elbowing your son or daughter right now. And you're like, you know what, son? You're not going to pick. We're going to pick for you. Or your daughter, you're not, you're not going to pick. We're going to choose for you. That's what Joseph and Mary's families did. That was the culture of the day. And so you would, you imagine growing up in town, maybe at, at, at early teens, and you see the person you're kind of promised to in the street, and you have kind of a shy smile, and yet there's a little bit of a heart flutter and excitement thinking, oh, we might be married one day. You get all that. And so Joseph is feeling all those feelings, and the day has finally come that not only has this, this kind of uh, uh, tentative engagement been solidified, they, they have ratified it. Neither of them have objected to it once they came of marriageable age, and so they are now betrothed to one another. And that meant that they're legally tied and culturally and familiarly tied with one another. And the only way to break a betrothal is with a divorce. So it's there in a sense legally tied. They're getting their affairs in order and the marriage has not been fully celebrated and consummated. But but it is it is as if they are legally husband and wife already. And so Joseph perhaps thinks it's an odd time for Mary to decide, you know what, I'm going to leave for three months, suddenly, with very little warning, because that's what happens. She, she is, is uh, a, the angel appears to her, and then she go visits her cousin Elizabeth for three months, and so Joseph is probably thinking, well, this is weird. This is a little weird. I'm just telling you, if you're engaged to someone, and they're like, you know what, I'm going to take a three-month trip right now, you probably want to ask some questions. You probably want to be a little bit suspicious, be like, what's going on? So Joseph is probably wondering what's happening. She finally returns. And you can imagine his joy turns to shame and sorrow when he discovers she's pregnant. And he knows, obviously, he's not the father of this child. He's, he's probably running through the people in the town. Could it be them? Could it be them? Why wasn't she faithful? Was it somebody in the town she went to? What's going on? What about my new life? All of these things that, that just the day before he'd been looking forward to. Maybe wedding plans were in the works. All of them dashed and he is heartbroken. He is ashamed. People in the town are beginning to whisper about this. And so what would Joseph do? Now what he could do is because the the penalty for breaking a betrothal is the same as adultery after marriage. 
He could call for justice in the middle of the town square. He could have her even killed if he, if he desires to push the law to the furthest extent allowable. He could kind of save face by being the just and angry fiancé, the one in the right, the righteous one against the sinner. Well, that is the situation Joseph finds himself in. And in that situation, we find two beautiful gifts this Christmas story gives us. First is the gift of Joseph. Now, in his attitudes and actions, Joseph is going to give us a remarkable gift, something we can learn from today. First, we see that Joseph honors God. He's described in the text as a just man, a man doing his best to follow the law, a man doing his best to honor God. And even the way that the text is phrased, you can feel the tension here. He is a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So he knows what the law says about adultery. He knows what should happen, but he also has mercy, right? In this way, Joseph is a beautiful picture of, of the heart of the Old Testament law, which describes God, the, the one that the law is meant to reflect, as the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and yet who will by no means clear the guilty. He's wrestling in that tension. What should he do? When an angel appears to him and essentially says, Mary is telling the truth. Now, imagine how difficult that would have been to believe at first, right? Mary comes, you know, to town and they're asking her, what happened? Who's the father of this child? And she says, no one. The Lord. What? Yes, an angel appeared to me. Okay. And... It's not just any baby. It's supposed to be the Messiah. You're like, okay, Mary, you're really pushing your luck here. The magical, you know, God child that you have is not going to get you out of whatever situation you have found yourself in. Just admit what happened. And yet Joseph is told, it's true. It's true. Mary was telling the truth. And, and after the angel disappears, Joseph realizes Two things. One, this is wonderful news for the nation of Israel. This is wonderful news for God's people. God himself has come and the Messiah is being born. But that's the good news. The bad news is no one's going to believe him and the rest of his life's going to be really hard. Right? It's going to be really hard. He's going to have this story hanging over him for his entire life. And yet watch what he does. In the Gospels, he doesn't say a word. But watch what he does. The text, look, look at the way the text phrases it. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Meaning that, 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 that as quickly as possible, it seems to suggest, he goes to Mary. We don't know if they've spoken before this. But imagine perhaps that, that, that Joseph has heard this. Or maybe he's had one interaction with Mary where she's told him, hey, here's what happened. And he's just distraught. He's thinking, like, this is unbelievable. There's no way this is true. And yet Mary in that moment is probably thinking, I will never see this man again. This, this young man that I've grown up with, this young man that I once was looking forward to, to, to being married to, I'm never seeing him again. He's never going to look at me in the eye again. And yet he goes and he finds her, he looks her in the eye and says, Mary, come home with me. You're going to be my wife. Right? That, that is what Joseph does with quiet, beautiful character. When everyone else in the town is backing away from this, this young girl, 
he moves toward her. He goes and finds her. And then he does something remarkable. He, he makes a, if you could say it this way, a great exchange in his relationship with Mary. First, he takes from Mary something. He takes her shame on himself. Now, understand this, that when Joseph marries this girl, the story in town is going to change. The story was probably going to go from Mary was unfaithful, poor Joseph, poor, poor Joseph. He was cheated on by this young woman. It's going to change. Because if he, if he divorces her, if he disavows her, then it kind of confirms that story. Like, yep, that's right. It wasn't Joseph's kid. And Mary's an outcast in the town and in society. But instead, by going to her and marrying her, taking her as his wife, the story will change. And all of a sudden, it will probably be, oh, oh, I see what happened here. Joseph dishonored her. Joseph couldn't wait until the wedding day. Joseph uh, perhaps is saving face here. It's the best he can do. He's taking this girl because what else can he do? And the shame of the situation, in a sense, goes from Mary to Joseph. And then all of a sudden the conversation is probably, oh, poor Mary. Poor Mary. He takes her shame on himself and, and he gives to Mary something. He gives to Mary and this child Something profound and unique and beautiful. Now, Joseph was not, a, was not a wealthy man. He didn't have a lot of wealth to give. He wasn't a culturally powerful man. He didn't have a lot of cultural cachet to give. He, he really only had one unique thing about him, right? One unique thing about him, he was a distant, direct descendant of King David himself, right? It's just, you know, and, and for much of his life, it, it probably was the one thing that he would, you know, bring up at parties when things were slow, you know. Hey, do you do any fishing? No, not really, you know. Uh, you got to, uh, well, what's your family like? And you're like, oh, I'm a distant, direct descendant of David. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, look at these guys. Hey, come meet the future king over here, everybody. Yeah, you know. It's kind of a funny thing. And yet it, it, it did bear some cultural value, some cultural resonance. It was a powerful thing that Mary then was brought into, in a sense, you could say this with a smile, but in a sense, a royal family, humble though it was. But there is something even more profound going on here, that when Joseph takes this child as his own, he gives to this young family an incalculable gift, which is this, that Joseph, as a direct descendant of King David, by adopting this child, gives to the child a claim to the throne of Israel. Notice how, how, how the, the gospel starts, the genealogy starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right? Remember the promise in 1 Samuel that, that somebody from David's throne would never depart from the throne. Somebody from David's line, rather, would never depart from the throne. Uh, Matthew is saying, remember that promise? Well, look down at, 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 at verse uh, 20. He says, Joseph, the angel addresses him as Joseph, son of David. What he is doing is he is playing a crucial role in redemptive history. By taking Mary's shame and giving to Mary and this child his name, he is setting up the future Messiah of Israel. Right? That, that, that is profound. 
he becomes the next heir to the throne. And look, Joseph, man, what Joseph does is quiet, but it is beautiful and it is profound. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we all bought mystery ornaments um, from Five Below because that's, I'm not going to, look, my kids are going to break Hallmark ornaments, man. Like if you, if you give my kid like a $20 ornament, that thing is not going to last a year. So we bought our Christmas ornaments at Five Below. My, dad, my, my son got a little mystery box. He and, his, he and my, mo- my wife's mom, his, his grandmother, bought mystery box ornaments together. And they were excited, like, oh, yeah, you know. And so we get home, we open the mystery boxes, and he, like, the, the details aren't important, but he, he basically gets out of the mystery box a weird girl ornament, Right? An ornament of a girl, that's weird, and like kind of a weird goth girl, and he's just like, oh, great, this is my Christmas ornament this year. And almost before he could, like the, the, the disappointment could settle on him, my mother-in-law did something that you just think this is a mom or a grandma. She goes, oh, you know what? Why don't we switch? I'll take your weird old ornament and give you mine, which is like an adorable child's ornament that he loved. It just, just even before he could say it, switches with him. That's what Joseph is doing, in a sense, with Mary and this child. He takes her shame, and before she, she, before the shame of the town can even settle on her, he gives his name, his standing, to this young family. Now, it's a beautiful gift, but it points to an even greater gift. The second gift is the gift of Jesus, because we see that the most powerful gift in this story is not. Joseph's gift to us or to this family. It is God's gift to all of us. Now, notice the parallels between Joseph and his adopted son. Uh, Look what it says about this adopted son in verse 21. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, reflected in Joseph's character, a glimmer of the character of Jesus. Now first, you see that this child, like his adopted father, will honor the Lord, right? He is, he is, Joseph is a just man by earthly standards, but he's not a perfect man. Yet his adopted son, Jesus, will actually be a just with a capital J man, a righteous man with a capital R, perfect and sinless in every way. His supernatural conception points to a supernatural, divine righteousness that this child will have from the moment of his birth. And he will take up, like his adopted father, a difficult, dangerous, costly mission from the hand of God himself, and he will fulfill it to the end. Second, we see this child, like his adopted father, doesn't move away from the outcast or the shamed. He moves toward them. Uh, Jesus is called here Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, look, here's the reality. Mary was rumored to be a sinner, but all of us as humanity, we are confirmed sinners. And if you're here today and you're like, well, I'm not that much of a sinner, just ask your spouse after the, the meeting, or better yet, your small children who are brutally honest, right? Ask like a four-year-old that has no filter yet. Does that ever get angry? Yep. Now, your 10-year-old or 11-year-old might be diplomatic, like, well, I mean, sometimes, but you're a great dad, though. Can I have a treat? You know, the four-year-old is like, you get angry, right? That's, 
the reality. Mary was rumored to be a sinner. We are confirmed sinners. Mary was rumored to be unfaithful, but we are unfaithful to the Lord and to his purposes. Mary and her reputation put her, Mary's reputation put her outside of polite society, maybe even outside of, of her family in a sense. And yet, our sin, our unfaithfulness, our unrighteousness actually do put us outside of God's family forever. So here's the reality. God could, like Joseph, he could call us into the town square. He could say, here is my list of charges before you. Here are, are the sins you've committed. Here it is, all exposed in view of all the angels and all eternity. Here is who you are and here's what you are. And I am calling right now for justice. That's what Joseph could have done. But just like his adopted father Jesus does the opposite. Instead of moving away from sinners, instead of coming only in judgment, he moves toward sinners. God moves toward humanity by sending his very son. And this son comes to draw near to us. And that's what we celebrate in the Christmas season. We celebrate that God drew near to us. And it's not as like we're, we're just the best people. And it's like, well, who wouldn't want to be around us? Of course, listen, take you at your worst moment in the town square, exposed in front of anyone. Do you think anybody wants to be with that person? Do you think anybody wants to draw near to that person? I'll tell you what, Jesus does. Jesus wants to draw near to you. And then Jesus does, well, he, he does what his adopted father did, but on, a, on an eternal and greater level. He takes our shame and gives us his name. He takes our shame... Uh, it was prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he would be a Messiah. He would be a king who would take our shame on himself. Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This king came to bear our shame on the cross, to be stripped and beaten and marched outside of the city, marched outside of polite society, nailed to a bloody cross and hung out there for all to see and mock. Right? That is our shame falling on him. And what does he give us in exchange? He gives us the gift of his name. Jesus saves not only by taking our shame, but by giving us his name. And in the ancient world, someone's name meant their whole character, their whole reputation, who they are, right? When Joseph adopts Jesus, he's giving him his name, right? All the line of David, all the many years of history, now Jesus was linked into that story. It was bestowed on him. Same with Mary. She's brought into this but in a truer, greater way, we all who have come to trust in Christ not only have our shame removed, we have the gift of God's name applied to us. Now we live, oh, we live under, we live our Christian lives under the beautiful name of Christ Jesus. Once we were called unjust, and we were, yet in Christ we are called just. 
Once we were unrighteous, and we were, and now in Christ we are called righteous. Once called unfaithful, and we were, now in Christ we will be called faithful. Once cast out, yet in Christ we will be called welcomed and and whole. Once enemies of God, now we will be called family with God. Right? This is unbelievable. So what Joseph does... What is a picture of what his adopted son will do, not just for one family, but for every family that will come to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And look, here's what this means, friend. This gift of God at Christmas is for you. Look, maybe you're thinking, great, I love Christmas. It's a great season. But Christmas is for the people who are put together, the people who can afford to buy nice gifts, the people who haven't messed up in their life, the people who are insiders, not outsiders, the people who don't deal with depression and difficulty and all these things. Those are the kind of people, the the people that go on the front of a Hallmark movie thumbnail, like that, those are the people Christmas is for, not for me. Because people see me, they move away from me. Oh, friend, not so. Look at the example of Jesus. Look at the example of Joseph. The Lord moves toward the shamed. He moves toward the sinner. And today, this great exchange can take place for you. He can take your shame, the things you don't want to ever have anyone else see. He takes those things and gives you the gift of his name if you will only come to him as Savior and Lord. And look, here's the application and implication then for us. First, if you don't know Christ, won't you come to him today? Won't you come to see him as your Savior and Lord and have this great exchange happen for you? Do you think the relief Mary felt lasted just for a day? No, the relief Mary felt she carried for her whole life. That not, where once she thought, I might be cast out and live the entire life, entirety of my life raising this kid on my own. Joseph now takes The shame that she once bore gives her his name and walks with her. That can happen for you today in a deeper, truer way than you could ever imagine. And for those of us now who have come to Christ, this reshapes the way we relate to others now, doesn't it? Knowing that God, if we... If everything we've said about us is true, knowing that we are sinners, that God has moved toward and and that he then has acted redemptively toward us shapes the way we interact with other people. All of a sudden, look, here is the world's exchange. The world's exchange in most human relationships is, listen, I'm going to take the best of what you have and I'm going to saddle you with the worst of what I have. And most of us would never say that. But man, isn't that what, what, what ungodly dating is? It's, it's saying, listen, I, I am going to take your body, your time, the best of you, and I'm going to give you my insecurities and my fears and my sins, and then I expect you to just love me anyway. Right? That's, I'm gonna, that, that's a terrible exchange to make. And yet gospel relationships flip the paradigm completely. All of a sudden, we view other people this way. That Listen, what, what from them can I take on myself? Can I bear with them on? And what can I give them in the image of Christ, in the pattern of Christ? We take the worst of what they have and give the best of ourselves. And you're thinking, nobody does that. Nobody lives like that. Nobody can live like that. Well, Jesus does. And Jesus' people treat one another in that pattern. Man, what is parenthood in the gospel other than taking sometimes the worst of your kids and giving the best of yourself? What is marriage at its best but taking the worst of your spouse and giving the best of yourself? 
And we can do that, and we do do that because that's what God's done for us. He's taught us to do it. Imagine Jesus growing up, watching Joseph go throughout his life, maybe quietly, seemed like a quiet man, a strong, silent type, and yet people would whisper about Jesus, I'm sure, when they got back from Egypt, oh, that's Joseph and his uh, son that arrived a little early, Jesus, if you know what I mean. You know, and, and he watches Joseph just year over year take the shame of laughing, smiling, perhaps a tight smile, and yet loving his family, taking that shame, giving the best of himself. And it's not as though Jesus needed that example, but man, what a picture of what Jesus would do one day for all of us. And here's the beautiful thing. At the end of his life, what, what Jesus does for Joseph because look, he, here's the reality. Jesus sees Joseph again. Very likely Joseph dies in Jesus' childhood or Jesus' teen years. That's why he's not present in the other Gospels. And yet Joseph and Jesus are reunited one day. And imagine, I'm sure Joseph would be happy to see Jesus, but in the circumstance of seeing him as the, as the exalted king of the earth with power over every atom in the universe, Joseph is going to remember a couple things. One, this kid was in my house every day. So anytime I was like, Mary, I thought you said this was going to be finished. He looks over and sees Jesus, right? Like, oh, great. You know, or like, you kids, you never clean up in here, and I swear I'm going to put you out on the street unless you get this thing cleaned up. Jesus is just there. Father, are you okay? You seem perturbed, you know, and I don't know if Jesus talked like that. And and yet, it would be like living, you know, I hate the elf on the shelf thing because it's freaky. But this is Joseph's life. He has the son of God watching him all the time in his home. And so at the end of his life, do you not think all that stuff is going to come flooding back to him? All of the failures, all the things he didn't do that he should have done, all the things he did that he should not have done, as he beholds his son as the king of the universe, do you not think all that stuff is going to come rushing back to his mind? And yet what Jesus does for him, he does for all of us. He takes his shame and gives the gift of his name, Christ Jesus. Right, that, that friend, that shapes and re engineers every human relationship we have, doesn't it? The knowledge that we really can be fully known and yet fully loved in Christ, that our deepest shame could be removed and the gift of who God is given to us. That changes and reshapes our relationships. So we wanted you to hear a testimony today as we've been in this section on relationships and gospel relationships in 1 Corinthians. We want you to hear a real-life testimony from a couple in the church that God really has done an amazing work in. Uh, an example, I think, in many ways of God going and drawing near to brokenness, taking the worst of it and giving his best. And so would you welcome uh, Sean and Amy Lewis as they come to share with us today. Yeah, prior to, I just want to start by saying prior to 2023, I shared very little about what was going on in my life, right? Men want to hide things, prideful men want to hide things. So you can imagine 
what this testimony is going to be about. I shared one time with my brother in 2019, and I say that because 2019, right, that's a long time ago, right? Th there was some struggles going on. So what happened on December 18th, one year ago to the day when we walked out those doors and never came back uh, was, was all about Sean living a selfish life. And I said to, I said to my brother, I said, uh, God to me, it's a quote, it's not mine, God to me is a great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. And that was my life. I believed in him. I was raised in a Christian home. I was doing everything right. What's the problem with that statement? I was doing everything right in my life. God wasn't at, in his rightful place uh, on the throne. Sean was, and that's going to destroy, right? Way ahead of myself here. But Amy left our home December 18th a year ago. She was gone. I didn't know where she was. I was asked to leave the home to find somewhere to live, and I moved out on December 26th. So you can imagine what our Christmas was like. And uh, let me share this. I didn't this morning, but and that's with 10 kids. That's 10 biological kids, 33 to 17, and I'm destroying it. I was serving a restraining, I was served a restraining order on 6th of January, and Amy filed for a divorce on the 20th of January. What a mess, right? This was not what I had envisioned for my life. I, I was doing everything right. God I, had given me a godly uh, loving wife, a beautiful family. Everything looked great on the outside. I was expecting God to bless my goodness and obedience. Is he going to do that for us? No, absolutely not. Because it isn't about my goodness and my obedience. It is only about his. When I was alone, I looked through my journals from 33 years of being married, and it was obvious what was revealed inside those, jour those journals was a guy that was longing to know Jesus, a desire to know him, and to find peace. But I couldn't find it, it despite all of my efforts to live a holy and righteous life. It's not going to work. Something's missing. So what was the problem? Why did Amy get to this point? It, like I said, it didn't happen overnight, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's coincidental. We're in church together on December 18th, and, um, you know, it's not coincidental. It's the sovereignty of God, right? But when we walked out, um, I, I don't even remember what happened that afternoon, but it was enough to go, you know, it's time, I'm done. So we've all heard from the pastors at this church if you do not have the vertical relationship with Jesus Christ, him as your Savior and your Lord, right, we'll never get the horizontal earthly relationships like marriage, relationships with our children, and relationships outside our family and the work with our neighbors. They'll never be right. If you find your life riddled with strife, and that's what I found, and if you find your life riddled with strife and conflict, there's something wrong. That's exactly what I found in my journals that night as I read through them. Consistent outbursts of anger at home with Amy, with my children, at work, followed by this deep repentance and sorrow, crying out, God, help me, help me. I need your help. The anger became more and more frequent. She was patient with it for the first many years. It became more and more, and then it became to spiral out of control. I remember Ricky in a sermon a number of years ago saying, when your marriage 
is starting to spiral out of control. It affects so many other areas, right? And then it just all starts to crumble everywhere. And with that many children and what they were watching at home, that's what was happening. The specific problem, and I say this, please hear me, mostly men, you will never find peace in your life so long as you claim to know God, and that's what I was doing, to love him and to obey him, to have surrendered your life to him while you place yourself on the throne. It won't work. God won't compete with you on the throne, right? He will crush you. And that's what started in my life on December 18th last year. Oh, yeah. And so, okay, so I say, let me just read that again. Specific problem, you will never find peace in your life so long as you claim to know God, to love him. If you haven't surrendered your life to him. This, I said, is a modern-day Pharisee. And the results of such a lifestyle is a path of destruction all around you, especially to your family. John Piper said in one of his sermons, it's a simple statement, anger destroys. It destroys, right? It destroys. You can say other sins hurt, and they do. But anger destroys, and it did. And it was. That was going on. When Amy left in December, the first word that God clearly spoke, and this was right off. That's why it was just this conflict inside, but God made it real clear. He said, Sean, you've not loved your wife, Amy, as I have called you to love her. She was a gift that I gave you, and now you've lost her. You talk about, and God is really clear saying this to me, and you have not led your family with love and grace. I thought, oh, Jesus, you're nailing it, Father. I get it. I began to break emotionally and physically and spiritually. The discipline of a loving God had begun, and I, I love that verse, Hebrews. I memorized it a long time ago, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. That's what I was getting, and I said, Lord, I was running to him. Um, so... Early in January, I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon as well, and it said, I have learned to kiss the waves that dash me upon the rock of ages. While listening to Dane Orton's commentary, Joe had told me to listen to this. Matter of fact, Joe had told me too. He had said, Sean, do you, do you know the love of Jesus? And I'm going, I think I do. I think I do. And this commentary by uh, Ortland, he says this on Psalms 46, and this really hit me too, because I'm not a guy that wants to stand still. I want to grab control of things, right? A lot of men are, right? But God clearly said, he said, be still, be quiet, look up, calm down, God reigns. What troubles you today, what is it about you which you think, if I could just get this all sorted light, life will become manageable, what worries your heart as you lie awake in bed at night? And believe me, I laid in bed a lot at night, worrying my heart about what I had done to my family. God says, I'm your refuge. I'm a very present help in trouble. I am your God. Be still. And I held on to that. Wherever I turned, God was there in the midst of the discipline. It was in the discipline of God that I experienced his love. Can you imagine? How does that work, right? The oxymoron of God. In his discipline, I found his love. I kept getting these hugs from him all throughout this, this time. So God brought me to this place. I had lost everything. But when the disciplining and the smarting rod of God 
fell on me instead of fighting against him like I had for years. By his grace alone, I ran to him. God placed people, men and older couples in my life, all of which kept saying to me, keep doing what you're doing, Sean. Keep running to Jesus. You cannot change Amy and her decision now to divorce, nor should you try. One man said to me, I remember where I was, he said, Sean, and everyone was saying, you know, uh, uh, get, uh, get, you know get your life right, uh, but you do have to let go. You have to let go. It's over. Uh, the consequence for what you've done, it's over. But this one man used the word grip, and he said, Sean, let go of your grip on Amy. And for some reason, I just broke. I went home that night, and I crunched my fist on my knees, and I held my hand out, and I rolled it out like this. I said, God, I let go of my grip on Amy. She's yours. You take her, Father. I will live the life that you have for me, whatever that might be. That was on March 23rd, that very day, that night, Amy's birthday. I was now more transparent about my failure with people. That's another thing that was my story was, you know, you hide things. Ricky mentioned it today. We hide things and, uh, you know, you, you need help when you're in a situation like I was in. But at that point, the shame was gone. God had done something in my life, and it was just, you'd walk into a church, and I wasn't going here because Amy was here, but you'd walk into a church, and someone would, you know, they'd greet you, hey, you, you, you knew here, you stationed at Fort Bliss or whatever, and I'd go, uh, no, no, I'm going through some trials right now, and I'd start to share a little bit. They would wrap their arms around me and get ahead of myself here, but being more transparent, many of them would break with me, pray right on the spot with me. That was new, too, to me, was people loving so much, and they didn't wait. They would pray for me in the auditorium of the church, in the Sunday school class, at the men's Bible study, in a restaurant, wherever we were, they prayed for me to find peace in Jesus and to know the love of Jesus for me. Now, this is the, now we'll get into some of the good part, right? During that time, Amy and her prayer group were praying for me that I would know the love of Jesus. Again, we didn't talk for seven months. It was broke, and we weren't allowed to. She was praying that God would put men in my life that would speak truth to me, and that's exactly what happened. And, and I'm not exaggerating in my journal over 40 people, and I'm not talking about one-time experiences. I'm talking about men and women that came around me and started praying for me. God put over 40 people from churches, high school, college acquaintances, uh, from my time in the, in the military. Not one, one of them, I, I'm going to not exaggerate here, there might have been a couple, but most of them, of all of them, said to me, they didn't coddle me and say, hey, things are going to be all right, Sean. They said, get your life right with Jesus. Get your life right with Jesus. And they were hard. They were wonderfully hard. And, and at that time, I wasn't fighting anymore, right? If that, Todd and Joe know Sean can fight, right? He can listen to what they're saying, but yet fight back. So, so they put these people in my life. Um, no one was coddling me saying, Sean, you know, everything's going to be all right. God's going to restore your marriage. Obvious little hugs from God, these people in my life, revealing his love for me, it became so real, so beautiful, that the word overwhelming kept going through my mind. Overwhelming. God's love is overwhelming. I kept feeling it. I would just break wherever I was. I'd be saying, Lord, I, I can't. This is amazing. 
All the while, I didn't know what was going on in Amy's heart. She didn't know what was going on in my heart. By law, we were not allowed to have any contact with one another, nor did Amy want to talk to me. The divorce proceedings were going slow. I had surrendered to the direction God was taking my life to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That was Psalm 37.7, came early in those Psalms that Joe was telling me to read. Just rest in the Lord, Sean. Wait patiently for me. Be still and know that I am God. And I, that was my first time in my life, slowing down and not controlling things. I had come to this place that I knew the love of Jesus and that he had for me even in my failure. Oh, I broke every time I thought about life without Amy. <laughs> But I had something in Jesus that I had never experienced before. But God, that became Amy and I's theme, right? But God, right? But God, he, he did something beautiful on the 12th of July. She broke the restraining order. I hadn't heard from her in seven months. And I got a text and it said, how did we get here? How did we get here? And that opened the door. I wrote her back in a text. Basically what I'm saying here, that you cannot live with yourself on the throne. God just won't allow it. And her heart began to melt, and that was the open door for the restoration and the healing that began. God took ashes and a mess of Sean's life and what he'd done to his family, what he'd done to others as well, and he made something beautiful, and only God could do it. So God has shown me his love. It was clear and it was real. I had experienced him. That was another thing. You can't experience God if you keep grabbing a hold of things. You cannot, you, you go, oh, God, I'm going to pray for you. Help me with this and that. Oh, I'm going to grab control. I'm going to grab control. That was my life. So I had experienced something I just had never seen before. Yes, did it take what it took? Yeah, because it was pretty hard, right? I'm, I'm that hard. God had to go, I'm going to break you, Sean. I truly surrendered control of my life to him for the first time in my life. When Amy and I share our testimony now, I'm always holding my hands like this, both of them, palms up for the first time in my life, living by faith, not going, I believe in you, God, I love you, God, but I keep grabbing it. So if you feel like me, where, you know, I, I know God, I believe in him, but I find him not, surrender your life to him and find that peace that we find, that we've been singing about all morning long. How beautiful the peace of God is. I never experienced it. Now I have it. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> J.C. Ryle says, ignorance of scripture is the root of all error and makes a person helpless in the hand of the devil. I thought I knew the Bible. I went to church. I homeschooled my kids. I did all the right things, but something was off, and the devil knows right where to attack. In 2021, when things were getting pretty hopeless, God led me to a Bible study with a group of ladies that I will forever be grateful for. I was transparent about my marriage and what was happening. We dug into scripture together, and they prayed and walked with me. These ladies showed me to look up. And God showed me that my identity needed to be only in him, not in my marriage, not in my kids, only in him. I am a daughter of the king. I, the Lord is my shepherd. God's word has never been more precious and important in my life. The devil knows the truth in God's word grounds us and dispels the attacks and lies of Satan. So stay close to the truth. I never stopped loving Sean, but
but I was set like flint, as Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, toward divorce. I believe now that God knew all along that divorce wouldn't actually happen. God has shown me in his word recently the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham didn't know the outcome when God clearly told him to kill his son on Mount Moriah. How could that be God, right? The Bible says, the Bible says that God stirs the heart. In his timing and because I was in God's word daily, I was sensitive to the Lord when he began to turn my heart back to Sean. And I can remember being here in, in this church one Sunday a few months back when we, before we got back together and hearing God speak to my heart, Amy, you have to live the gospel. Some 25 years ago, a fellow homeschool mom challenged us other moms with Philippians 3.10 where Paul says that I may know him. She said, do you really know him? I had highlighted that verse and written her name in my Bible, and I've seen it several times over the years. In the last year, as I've been systematically reading and digging into scripture, God has shown me several other places where he says that very same thing. Not do you know about him, but do you know him and his heart? Streams in the Desert is a wonderful devotional that has brought me a lot of comfort during this time. It quotes Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always for all things unto God. And it goes on to say, there are many black dots and black spots in our lives, and we can't understand why they are there or why God permitted them to come. But if we let God come into our lives and adjust the dots in a proper way and draw the lines he wants and separate this from that and put in the rests at the proper places, out of the black dots and spots in our lives, he will make a glorious harmony. Let us not hinder him in this glorious work, it says. I know God does miracles. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is the answer, and to God be all the glory. Yeah, just one more thing that I did want to mention, and it's the pastors in this church. They truly are shepherds. They are shepherds that took a guy like me, worked for a long time, for three years with me. And I remember Joe and Todd kept saying to me, they kept saying, Sean, do, do, do you... Do you know the love of Jesus? I can't repeat that enough because I kept thinking I don't know. But I would fight back on different things that they were trying to do. And they were, what was so beautiful about dealing with someone like me is they never gave up and they, they, they held on to hope. They held on to that hope that God can do a miracle. And it truly is a miracle. It's, uh, you know, it's just, I can't, I can't thank God enough. And to him be the glory. That's all I can say. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, go ahead and stand. And this is just, I, as we sing this closing song, I just want to encourage you. I felt like the Lord put this phrase on my heart in the first service. I want to try to be faithful to share it. And, and the phrase is just one that maybe is familiar to you as a kid. Come out, come out wherever you are. And, and I, think, I think one of the beautiful things about Sean and Amy's story, and I think one of the beautiful things about Matthew 1, is I think for most of our lives, we're afraid to expose the real us to others. We think that we're either not going to be fully known or not going to be fully loved. In Matthew 1, and in this Sean and Amy story, we find a God who fully knows us 
and yet moves toward us and not away from us. That is what the Bible calls grace. And so if that's you today, just want to encourage you to do what, what Sean and I were talking about and release that to the Lord and embrace His grace this morning.